0: All right. Well, good morning, Doxa Church. You can go ahead and take a seat. I love that sound so much. I could let that go on for a really long time. Well, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Rudy Hartman. I get to be on staff here with Doxa, working with the Salt Company, our college ministry out here. Um, And we are continuing our series through the gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, you can head to Mark chapter 4. We're going to pick up at verse 35. I will catch up to you there in just a couple of minutes. Um, When I was 13 years old, I was at a mall in Brandon, Florida, where I'm from, with my dad doing exactly what you would have expected a 13-year-old to do in the mall with his father, keep distance, <laughs> have headphones in, and head down in the phone, ignoring everything entirely centered on myself and trying to be like, yeah, he's with me, but he's not really with me. You know? like, it was just, just creating this space, doing the 13-year-old thing. I was entirely unaware of everything that was around me. And as I was walking through the mall, uh, I happened to, with my head down, brush by, mm, bounce off of, a larger gentleman, a bigger guy, uh, and do, I mean, in that moment, like a a headphone popped out. And I remember being like, huh, just because it felt like that's funny that that happened, right? He did not interpret it that way. Um, and so I'm walking, headphone back in my ear, and I feel a hand on my shoulder. I am whipped around in the middle of a mall. As this man, I mean, I'm 13 years old, 105 pounds, soaking wet, like, at best, two and a half of me standing over me, face red, furious, cursing at me. I mean, I, my, when I tell you my body went cold. I was absolutely terrified. And in what felt like a second, I feel another hand on my chest as my dad puts his hand on my chest, puts me behind him, steps in front of me, and stands this man down. So I thank God for my father. He's incredible. Um, But there was something that happened in that moment for me. As I'm behind him and I'm watching my dad just like move this man down, we walk out, we go to the car, and I'm just quiet. And again, you, if you know me now, you know quiet and me, no. Um, but at 13, imagine me less self-controlled. Um, at 13, uh, I, I, I wasn't quiet often and I was quiet as I looked at my father with this sense of like I was cold and it was just churning as I was realizing a lot of things all at once. But, but what I, if I was to try to articulate what I remember thinking, it was looking at my dad and being like, oh, that's what you're like. That's what, that's what you're like. Like if someone had come to me before that instance and had said, is your dad, would your dad like protect you if you were in danger? I'd have been like, yeah, sure. Like, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, like I'm, yeah, yeah. He would have, he'd protect me. Like I wouldn't doubt it, but I wouldn't be, I would. After that moment, absolutely. No question. I know who he is. And in light of knowing who he is, I know who I am. That's my dad. I'm his son. He protects me. Like that, that just shaped it completely in some ways. Just I, I knew that he was my father and I knew that I was a son. Like I knew that, but it reformed the way in which I related to him as a son. Because I looked at him and I'm like, you're my protector. That's what you're like. I wonder if you've ever had that moment with somebody. Whether they do something virtuous or not and you realize as you watch them do something, you're like, oh, that's what you're like. Someone tears you down, belittles you, gossips about you and you hear about it. They mock you and you realize real quick who they are and who you are to them. It reforms how you relate to them. Someone builds you up, encourages you, consoles you, strengthens you. You realize quickly who they are and who you are to them. It reforms how you relate to them. It has this tendency to reform the way you relate to them because in that moment, you see them as they really are. And when you see someone for who they really are, when they show you who they are, it shapes the way you see yourself in light of them and it shapes the way that you relate to them. This morning, we're going to walk into a moment just like that as the disciples see Jesus in a way that causes them to look at him and say, Oh, that's what you're like. That's who you really are. And it reforms the way that they relate to them. My hope for us this morning, as we see Jesus through this text as he really is, is that it would reform the way that we relate to him. You could put that at the top of your page, note takers. So let me set the scene in Mark chapter four. I told you i catch up. Um, and if the word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. So Mark chapter four, verse 35, let's get into it walking through the text. On that day when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was and the other boats were with him. All right. Let's situate ourselves in the story, it's evening, You're on the shores of Galilee with the you're on the shores of the Sea of Galilee with the disciples. Put yourself in this story. And Jesus has been teaching while sitting on a boat just offshore so that the whole crowd could hear him as his voice echoed across the waters. Kind of an archaic PA system going on. Parables correcting the perception and understanding that the people might have about the kingdom of God. He's been teaching them all day long. We heard them last week as Nate taught them to us. And then evening. Comes, You hear Jesus say, let us go across to the other side, so you go along with them. Jesus doesn't get out and change or anything. He just says, go and they go. Pretty basic stuff for a rabbi, teacher of the scripture, and his disciples, his followers. You manage to get on the boat with Jesus, so you've kind of got like a firsthand view of what we're looking at in this story. About 16 to 18 of you on this boat, heading out into the Sea of Galilee at night. And just to put you in the right mind, This is a bad idea (laughs) for a number of reasons. Reason number one, sudden storms on the Sea of Galilee were common. They actually still are. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, and the hills and mountains around it range from 1,500 to 2,500 feet. So the cold air coming over the mountains hits the warm climate above the sea, and storms occur quickly, violent storms. It is prime for sudden violent storms. It's not a shocking thing that that happens. But it is scary when it does. That's one reason that it's a bad idea to go out on this sea at night. Um, Another reason is, again, just to situate you in the story. You seeing this as a first century Jewish man or woman in the near Middle East, you would have been raised with a spiritual worldview. Our worldview today in the West is far more primarily materialistic. You can attribute that shift to a number of movements across the 17th, 18th, 19th century, Cartesian philosophy, the Enlightenment, whatever. But the dominant worldview then and the dominant worldview now that many of us in this room were raised with are different. Here's an example, how we relate to the sea. I'm from Florida. I look at the sea and I think vacation, right? Like that is a lovely thing for me to go and spend some time by. That was not the understanding of the people in our story. They would have had a spiritual worldview that was formed by an understanding of the sea or uh, maybe more accurately of the deep being a personification of the reality and presence of chaos and evil in the world. We can't park here, but you could go read Genesis chapter 1 to see how God brings chaos out of the waters. Psalm 63, Psalm 69. If you were here with us when we walked through our Daniel series, you'd remember in Daniel chapter 7, verse 3, that there are four beasts that come out in the judgment and they are coming out of the sea, right? This 8 by 12 mile Sea of Galilee does not just fall in the category of dangerous for you, it falls in the category of evil. In your mind, the sea is not safe. It's a representation of chaos and a personification of evil. And the sea at night is not so thrilling. And lo and behold, exactly what you're afraid of has occurred. But what happens is something that you could not have anticipated. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. This great windstorm comes. In in the Greek uh, original language this is written in, Mark uses the word mega. It is a mega storm. Waves breaking over the side of the boat. Winds so loud that you're shouting at one another from inches or, or mere feet apart, but you can't hear one another over it. It is a mega chaos on this boat for everybody on it except for... One person, verse 38, but he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Jesus in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Before you kind of like, yeah, right, and write this off, like, yeah, right, like that would be the case. No, like just take into account that you've never, I, I, to my, the best of my knowledge, no one in this room has ever taught with the entire fullness of their voice to a large crowd of people from a boat to a a shoreline for hours and hours and hours and hours throughout the day in the near Middle East through the climate of the sun beating and pounding down on you all day long. We can just assume Jesus is physically tired, right? Like that's a a reality that, that we find and he's physically tired, he's asleep and he's at rest. It's actually a sign of trust in his father that in the middle of a mega storm and mega chaos, Jesus is asleep. Jesus is at rest. But the disciples are not. Verse 38 continues, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So, pretty strong words from the disciples to Jesus, but before you judge them too quickly, I just want you to... Think back to a time where you were in crisis or where you felt stressed and noticed just this reality. Were you in that moment perhaps not yourself (laughs) Um, or perhaps were you in that moment so fully yourself that you weren't able to actually exert self-control that you're normally able to exert over yourself, that in that moment you were just so dropping your pretense and your posturing and your performance that all that spilled out of you was brutally honest words? Are you going to let us die? Do you not care that we're perishing? Now, you might think that's not how you're supposed to talk to Jesus. I would argue that it's one of the only ways that you should. While it's not the point of this story, I think it's important to note that in a moment of intense need, of storm, scrambling, chaos, and crisis, these disciples go straight to Jesus That is their response in the middle of their chaos. And when they come to him, they don't use religious sounding language. They don't try to look better than they actually are. They don't, let's just go there. They don't lie in their prayer to God. They don't come up to him and say, Jesus, we trust you and snuggle with him on the cushion. Like that's not what happens in this text. They are struggling to trust him. They're watching him asleep fully at trust in his father and they are struggling to trust him because they think he's going to let them die. They come straight to Jesus with an honest prayer, with honest words. They pray what they've got. Jesus hears them and he gets up. Verse 39, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Just a few things to note here before we get to the last verse. It's really important to understand that in this story, Jesus rebukes the sea and speaks to the disciples. I've often heard this story told that Jesus speaks to the sea and rebukes his disciples. Like he's calm with the storm, but condemning towards his followers. I actually think that idea of trying to read this, which obviously isn't in the text, but can sometimes be how we perceive honestly ourselves, is then read into the text because that's how we see us. We might be quick to shame us where Jesus is simply speaking. It is also really interesting to note that Jesus rebukes the wind in an oddly similar way to how he spoke to the demon in Mark chapter 1. If you remember, to the demon that interrupts his teaching on the Sabbath in Mark chapter 1, Jesus looks at him and says, quiet, get out of him. Just talks to him. And to the storm he says, quiet, be still. It's almost as if he's treating them the same similar words, similar pattern. He addresses, rebukes, and moves on. Nothing showy. He doesn't even say, God, would you quiet the storm? He just speaks. He spoke to the demon and he spoke to the storm in this way because Jesus speaks to things he has authority over and they do what he says because they know who he is. So he just speaks. And something shocking happens. Look at the text. There was a great calm. Again, back to the Greek, there was a mega calm, mega storm, mega calm, mega storm reduced by three words from Jesus into a mega calm. And the disciples, uh, he looks at his disciples and then says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Like this idea of being afraid is not simply speaking to the circumstance, but to their character. Not speaking to how they reacted, but to who they are. He's not saying, why were you afraid in that moment? He's saying, why are you still afraid in your character? And then he matches it. Do you still have no faith? After seeing what I've just done, everything that I've done, do you still have no faith? Something that you have to notice here, that in this moment of intense need of storm of scrambling of chaos of crisis just like the disciples in our moments like that we can and should absolutely come to Jesus we should come to him first and we should come to him honestly but in some of those moments perhaps not all but some of them don't be surprised if the response from Jesus eventually is why are you so afraid do you still have no faith you got to remember that Jesus says this after he calms the storm not before He doesn't say it in the storm, he says it after. He's not trying to yell over the wind. He's not shaming them. He's not making them feel like idiots. He's sitting and speaking with you on the boat and he's looking back and saying, you've seen what I've done, why are you so afraid? Do you still not have faith? Understand, Jesus is teaching them with these questions. He's teaching these men who've walked with him fully aware of how far they still have to go. Which brings me to the final thing I wanna note before we move on. Jesus doesn't leave after he says this. Jesus doesn't say, do you still have no faith? And then gets out of the boat and like bounds across the water, right? Like he doesn't dip out on them after he teaches them with this question. No, he's a good teacher. He says that to them and then with his presence with them, he says, I'll see this through. I'll stay with you. I'll keep teaching you because his desire is for his disciples that they would have a real faith. So Jesus will keep showing them exactly who he is, just like he has on this boat. Speaking to a mega storm on the sea that represented evil, and then bringing an immediate mega calm with just his words. So, what is their response? Verse 41 And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, Who is it then that even the wind and the sea obey him? Oh, man. We're going to camp there for just a bit. They were filled with a great mega fear. That led to a mega calm that came from a mega calm because Jesus had calmed the mega storm. Mega storm, mega calm, mega fear. This literally reads that they feared a fear. They were scared of the storm, but they are terrified of their teacher. And, and just before you, 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 you skew that, just put yourself there again for a moment. What is more disorienting? The fact that a mega storm came on the Sea of Galilee or the fact that you watched your teacher say three words and it went away? You look across at the other boats. Did you notice that? It says there were other boats with them. Just such a cool moment of just someone just remembering this moment and um, Mark writing it it, it out and it down. You look across at the other boats. The sea between you and them is glass and the moon is reflecting off the waters because the clouds have parted and gone away and it hits you all over again. What's more disorienting, the storm that you expected or the calm that feels impossible? You look at Jesus and you go cold. He just spoke three words and whoosh, mega storm to mega calm. Their voices tremble, I imagine, as they ask this question. This question that you've seen through the book of Mark so far that forms the melody of Mark. In chapter 1, verse 27, after Jesus frees the demonized man, he says, they, they say, what is this? In Mark chapter 2, verse 7, after Jesus forgives the man on the mat, they say, who can do this? In, in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, after Jesus controls the storm in the sea, they say, who is this? Who is this? this then that even the wind and the sea obey him they are seeing him as he really is and they're needing to question and reform and reshape how they relate to them because you can almost see them running the math in their head as they simultaneously realize two things number one they realize that Jesus really is God who can speak to a storm and calm it with just his words Well, one piece of, one common piece of Jewish literature read that if someone claimed to control the weather, they were to be charged with blasphemy because only God could do that. Psalm 107, verses 23 through 25 read that some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Psalm 77, verse 16, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Who can speak to a storm and calm it with just his words? They know the answer as they look at Jesus and they are terrified. God can do that. And as suddenly as the calm took the place of the storm, it suddenly starts to dawn on the disciples in a different way that Jesus is really not just some special rabbi. He's not just some gifted teacher. He's so much more. This is God and the flesh. Now, there's so many reasons that as you look at them for you to have said, they should have seen that already. And we know it from Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. We see the messianic motif in the text. But put yourself there. Just put yourself there on the boat in this moment. As you watch the storm go to calm and you see Jesus for who he really is. The way that you relate to him before unravels and is completely reformed. You stare at him and your false views of him are completely shattered. This is so much more than a political figure that's gonna conquer Rome, so much more than some common general warrior king. He's so much more than a good teacher or a wise man. He's so much more than the false views or the low views that I had of him. He's so much more important than me trying to align myself with him so I can get a little more power, a little more comfort, a little more wealth a little more something. He's better than being a means to a different end. He is to be the end himself. He really is greater than all of these material things I planned on leveraging my relationship with Jesus to get from me. I thought that hanging with Jesus, with the guy that healed people, would just make my life easier. So that's why I'm here. No, these false views of coming to Jesus to use him for your own end are entirely shattered when you stare at him on the boat and realize, oh, this is God. Your false views shatter and your casual views shatter, your familiar views. Yes, Jesus is friend. He is a friend of sinners, but he is also so much more than a friend. He's not your homie. He's the holy one of God. He's not a pathetic little teddy bear that you hold on to at night because you need something to take your mind off the storm. He's not a plaything. He's not a hobby. He's not some simple topic of mindless or mindful debate. He's not something so simplistic that you get to determine if Jesus works for you or not. He's not just some teacher you can rip sand off of so that you can feel a little more wise he's not to be treated casually tritely or small because he's god and in that moment on that boat there is a terror you fear a fear You start to see in this moment the true immensity of Jesus like everything is fuzzy and yet entirely clear all at once like you see him right there in front of you but then he's also expanding to the size of eternity in your mind your brain bends as you look at Jesus and the only thing that registers in your mind is that you are terrified this is the fear of God it is a peculiar fear not quite the same as simply being afraid not quite the same as simply being scared of God it's It's like being completely overwhelmed, struck with awe as you see him as he really is, slack-jawed by the holiness, the severe uniqueness of Jesus. You feel stuck right where you are because while you fear being near him, you also fear being anywhere else than right where he is. You see him as he is when the reality of Jesus as God breaks through. You feel all at once like the smallest thing to ever exist because of how holy he is and how unholy we are. And then simultaneously like the most important person and the entirety of the universe because of what he's chosen to do to save you for them from the storm, for us from our sin. It's in a moment or a series of moments like this that you understand who he is. You understand what he's like and you are overwhelmed. You stare at him and think tremblingly, oh, that's what you're like. Proverbs 1, verse seven teaches us that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, knowledge of who he is and a knowledge of who we are. As we see him as he really is, we have an intensely sharp awareness of who we really are. We first see that we are small, Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? The uh, the, the psalmist continues on from here to explain that you are valuable and you do have dominion and all of this is because God has decided in his good gracious will for it to be so but don't miss this. When the psalmist stops and prays and looks at God and sees him as he is, he looks at the sky and the moon and the stars, the creation of the creator, he could not help but feel small and that's just from looking at something that he made. How much smaller when you understand truly who he is Look, small is not bad. It is not debased. It is not devalued. It's just honest. You look at the creator God, you look at God, and you see who he is. You look at Jesus, and you see that he's God. You see him for who he really is. You can't help but reform the way that you relate to him and be like, I'm smaller than that. How could you look at God and say anything else unless you think yourself to be equal with him? And if you think yourself to be equal with God, then I can guarantee you, you have not seen Jesus rightly at all. I led a children's ministry at a church plant when I was in college for a little bit, and I used to teach something like this to our kids. I'd say, God is big. I'd have them repeat after me, but I won't have you do that. Uh, God is big, we are small, and God loves all of our small with all of his big. Right? That's kind of, it gets there. Okay. Um, (laughs) Okay. that was great for kids but if we're honest if we apply the mental faculties that we have with fully formed frontal cortexes and an understanding uh, an ability to understand who God is in a limited way and yet in a growing way this actually is overwhelming for us as adults I am small and God is big It's somehow he loves all of my small with all of his big When we see Jesus, we realize how small we are. And it should crush every casual, assumptive, or presumptive way in which we approach God. There is no way to approach the one who created the heavens and the earth casually. There is no way to approach the one who stopped the storm and calmed the seas casually. The arrogance of a casual approach to Jesus is not like a common cold. It is like a cancer that spreads and spreads. You treat him casually in one area. You'll treat him casually in others. You'll treat his words casually. His commands become suggestions. You brush off any conviction or desire or purpose that you might see as you follow after him. You just mold into the way that's been set for you by the culture that you came up in. You treat him casually because you're not overwhelmed by him which is a dangerous place to be. Psalm 36 verse 2 says this, I was reading this this morning and it just jumped off the page, a flattering opinion of yourself that you are not small before God. Someone with that flattering opinion, they see themselves as so big, even in relation to God, that person does not discover or hate their inequity, their sin. Which brings us to the next thing that we see. We are small and we have sinned. When you see Jesus as he really is, you can't help as you look back at yourself and see, I'm not that. Revelation 15 verse four says, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. When you see God for who he really is, you have this sense, this understanding that he is holy, he's set apart, he's separate, he's unique, there's no one like him, not even a close. Again, this is just honest. Before God, we're small, and before God, we have sinned. His holiness exposes the reality that I on my own am not. I'm a sinner. I've fallen short. So I've chosen my own way and my own sin, missing what God and his holiness might have for me. And when I see him for who he is, when I catch a glimpse of how holy and separate and perfect he is, I cannot help but realize I am a sinner. It's like going into an MRI machine with metal inside your body. The magnet pulses and it pulses and it pulses and you feel it just start to sear and burn and want to get out of you so bad. It has to get out because it's so obvious, it's so real, it's so exposed. And this reality crushes the hypocrisy of attempting to hide my sin from God. Trying to say one thing and then live another. Of trying to pretend that I'm not a sinner. It's like drinking poison and expecting nothing to happen. And when non-believers come talk to me sometimes people who don't trust in Jesus who say and I see people who claim to follow Jesus but their life doesn't line up with that at all. Like it, it is so so heartbreaking and this understanding of who Jesus is exposes that reality that that foolishness of hypocrisy or trying to hide our sin from God see sin leads to death death in my thoughts death in worship death in relationship death in my words I claim that I have life in Christ but the reality is that my hiding and hypocrisy are just leading to death and when you see Jesus Hypocrisy and hiding just don't make sense anymore because you can't hide it from him and he can actually do something about our sin. He can relieve you of your sin. He can forgive you of your sin. He can take that away from you. Where there is death in us, he brings life. He literally saves us from our sin. Which is why, Christian, when you encounter Jesus, there is a realization of a humbling smallness, the reality of sin, and finally, that you are so safe. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, I just have to tell you, this is not true of you. The author of Hebrews says it clearly, chapter 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Christ offers you safety and salvation by putting your trust in him as Lord and Savior, and if you reject him, you reject that, and you reject this safety. But Christian, as you see Jesus for who he really is, as you realize that while you are small and while you have sinned, because of what the Christ in front of you has done, you are safe. You know where the safest place to be in this storm was? Right where Jesus was. As they see him on the boat after he calmed the storm, they're realizing this is God. They were so terrified, and realizing who He is and who they are in light of it, but they were also terrified to leave because this was the absolute safest place they could be. Because they understood who God was and how He would treat them. They understood what God said to Moses, as revealed in uh, when, when God speaks to Moses in Exodus 34, when the Lord introduces Himself and says, "I'm the Lord. I'm, I'm the. Give you, I'll give you my personal name. I'm Yahweh. I'm mercy." and gracious. I'm forgiving. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love and truth. I'll maintain love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. No, I won't let sin go over it. Look, because I'm just. That's who I am. Like, they look at him, and they see that reality. They see that he's powerful, and he's personal, and he's good, and they feel small. They realize that they're sinners, but they feel so safe. How safe? How safe? Consider these words from Jesus in John 10, 28, where he says, I give eternal life. They will never perish. No one will take them from my hand. That's how safe. Jesus saying, I'll give you eternal life. You'll never perish. No one can take you from me. I've got you locked down. That's how safe. When we see Jesus as he really is, it reshapes the way that we relate to him. When we see who he is, we see who we are. Oh, small sinner, but Christians so, so, so safe. This is the disciples realizing that Jesus is God, but something else is registering at the same time. Jesus really is God, and the second thing they realize is that he really is with us, that God really is with us. This is an overture in the Old Testament over and over again. God saying, I'll be with you, I'll be with you, I'll be with you, I'll be with you. They've got that in their mind. That's on repeat. That's the hook of their life going over and over this refrain playing. And then they see Jesus calm a mega storm and with just words and he's right there and they're like, oh, you're with us. I see, you're with, you really are here and you really are with us. Look, it is this absolute beautiful reality. It is absolutely incredible that we see this this beautiful picture. He really is with us right there in the boat. It's so important for the people on the boat, but just imagine what this would have done for the original hearers of the gospel of Mark. Mark written to and dispersed in communities of followers of the way of Jesus who were being brutally persecuted and yet were choosing to live and sometimes die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an encouragement this would have been for them as they remembered that they were with Jesus, that Jesus really was God and he really was with us. They were filled by the spirit of God. God really was with them. So come hardship or high water, life or death, it was enough that Jesus is in the boat with me. I can come to him and he is with me. And Doxa Church, he also is with us. Jesus is with us is God and God really is with us. It means that I'm never alone. It means that I've never been abandoned. Even when I feel separate or apart from God, the reality of my life is that he's with me, not just in my boat but inside of me, filling me with his spirit. He's with me and he knows what's going on around me. It means that Jesus is not unaware of my storm and he's not unaware of yours. It means I don't have to pretend with Jesus when I come to him in prayer. I can come to him honestly and fully. He's not only with me, but he's aware of what's going on around me. I can bring my storm to him because I know he's with me in the boat in my storm. Maybe he chooses to calm the storm. Maybe he doesn't. I'm not sure why he does or doesn't sometimes, but what I do know is that he really is God. He really is with me, and that really is enough. It means that when I'm afraid, I can bring my fear to Jesus. I can put my faith in Jesus as we sing, who is my anchor to the ground, my hope and firm foundation, and make it a confession that he's never let me down because he's never let me be alone. It's the outcome every time? No, because of who he is and the reality that he has chosen to be with and stay with me, with you, with us these two things immediately realized as they asked this question, who is this? This is Jesus. He really is God. He really is with us. To close, there's a final thought that I think may have crossed the mind of the disciples, or I'm quite sure crossed the mind of the disciples. Perhaps not in this moment, as the mega storm to mega calm led to their mega fear in God, and that was probably all that was on their mind. But the Bible is a meditative text and these moments are meditative moments, so I have to think that there was a point wherein the disciples thought, you know, I've heard a story about a guy who was asleep on a boat in a storm, and then the storm stopped. His name was Jonah. <laughs> Mark is certainly trying to get us to think of this story as he writes and recounts this. Do you remember that phrase that he feared a fear? You can throw that up on the screen. Um, That's a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew phrase that comes from the story of Jonah. It is a direct pull. In a sense, from Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 to Mark chapter 4, verse 41. Then they feared the men in exceeding or great fear. They feared an exceedingly great fear. It's not, they're trying to draw our mind back in the original language to that moment in Jonah chapter 1. Our minds are meant to be drawn back to the similarities between Jesus and Jonah. You see, both of them were heading to the Gentiles. Both of them were asleep on a boat. Both of them are woken up. Both of them stopped the storm. But while they are similar, they're also dramatically different. Jonah is running away from what God has told him to do. And Jesus is boldly moving towards it. Jonah jumps into the sea, Jesus faces the sea. Jonah abandons the ship, Jesus stays in the ship. Jonah is swallowed, but Jesus speaks. Jesus delivers a blow in the presence of the disciples and the other boats that he is greater than the personification of evil and chaos that the sea represents. He looks at evil and chaos in that moment as they understood it in their mind, as it swirls and storms around them, and he says, quiet, be still, be still. It's a picture of a showdown. Jonah lost his as he ran from God's purpose for his life. But Jesus, in Jesus' life, this is just one blow in a series of strikes through liberating the oppressed, healing the sick, caring for the least, calming the storm, and teaching on the kingdom. This is one blow, but the final blow would come on the cross. On the cross, Jesus does not abandon ship. He takes the full weight of our sin on himself and in so doing breaks the power of evil, sin, and death. Jonah is spit out and begrudgingly invites the Ninevites to repent. Jesus, three days after dying on the cross for our sin, victoriously rises, walks out, and makes a way for all people of all nations and all tribes and all tongues to be with him and a part of his family forever, to have eternal life as they put their trust in Jesus. The mega storm of sin and death is met with the mega calm of the God gospel of Jesus Christ and we're invited this morning to look at Jesus to look at him through the lens of this text to look at him and see him in the way that I saw my dad in that moment in that mall and say oh that's what you're like you really are God and you really are with us and as you see him for who he really is it will reshape it will reform it will remake the way that you relate to him And with all this in mind, I can't imagine something I'd rather do right now than take communion with you. You see, we're going to take communion here in just a moment. You can see it in each of the corners of the room. There's bread and juice set up to represent the body and the blood of Jesus. The body that on the cross was broken for our sin. That was broken so that ours might not be. Christ being broken under the weight of sin, so that we might experience his forgiveness, so that we might be graciously forgiven, so that we might be rescued from the storm of sin that would have taken us down into the deep. Jesus says, Peace be still, and dies on a cross, his body broken, and his blood is spilled. What do we say about the blood? the preciousness of the blood of Jesus that cleanses our sin that makes us it's so like not not just not just makes us innocent but makes us righteous that he takes our sin from us and he puts his righteousness on us he he does this great exchange in the cross that we get to move towards in communion and remember we remember the reality that Christ lived this perfect life that we could never live. He died the death on the cross that you and I deserve, but he did not stay dead. He rose victoriously three days later so that all who would put their trust in Jesus might know that they are dead to their sin and alive to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ our Lord. So there is one question that I need you to consider before you stand, sing, or move to these tables. And at any point in the next few songs, you can move to these tables. The question is this, do you see Jesus as he really is? Like right now today where you are. If you do not have a trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm really, really grateful that you're here. Thank you for allowing me to teach the Bible to you. I'm going to ask you to not move towards the table. It will make no sense for you. It, it, It is the body of Christ broken the blood shed as we remember it as we lift up the bread and we and we dunk it into the juice or you take the little container and and you have the little cracker in the little cup you you're remembering the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for you and if you've not put your trust in Jesus you don't see him as he really is as savior and as lord it, it makes no sense for you to take communion so you can just sit where you are or you could put your trust in Jesus You could say, today is the day of salvation. I want to put my trust in Jesus. I want to know him as my Lord, as my Savior. I know I can see he really is God. And I want to live the life where he really is with me, where I know that he's in my boat. And I know that he's with me, with me now and with me into eternity as I experience eternal life with him by his broken body and resurrection life that I have my trust in him through the life, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus being saved by grace through faith not of my own works so that I can't boast but by his works what he's done for me so you could put your belief in Jesus perhaps you are a Christian and as you see him I wonder if you take some time before you move towards the table to see yourself small safe sinner to actually take some time right where you are to just see Jesus as he is see you as you are and ask him to expose any part of you any sin that you may be hiding any hypocrisy anything in there take time to repent to examine yourself confess your sin to the one who is faithful and just he'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness you can put you can you can repent to him even now And believe again, remember again the gospel as you break the bread and you take the juice. And finally, as you see him, as he really is God and he really is with you, He is and he has been and he will be. So our invitation after you take the cup and you take the bread is that you would worship. You would worship with praise that our Savior deserves. Praise as if you really did understand that he is God. I heard Teresa praying this for us before service. A sacrifice of praise. That that, that would be in this moment, but that this week with the life, you would worship him with a life as obedient to Christ's words as the wind and the waves were. So I want to invite you to take some time and then make your way to the table. Would you pray with me? So Jesus, help. Help us to see you as you really are. Help us to know who you really are. Help us to reform the way that we relate to you. In light of that, help us to see us. Help us to see ourselves and to respond and help us to remember and know that you're with us and that that's enough. It's in your name. Amen.